Welcome to the Eat Local CNY podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Tringale. And in this week's episode, we are sitting down and talking with my dad, Robert Tringale. You know, my father's been in the restaurant and hospitality industry for decades. And I thought it would be really interesting to be able to sit down and chat with him and just go through his timeline of his experience in restaurants and hotels in Syracuse and just throughout his whole career and all the restaurants that he's worked in in different parts of the country. You'll hear more about his story in the podcast. But Dad has done everything from owned restaurants here in Syracuse back in the 70s uh, to working in and developing menus in some of the kitchens in uh, famous restaurants in Syracuse today like Francesca's Cucina, uh, just to name drop that one. And as his son, I have to say it was really interesting to be able to sit down and um, chronicle his experience in uh, in his career and to go through year by year. And, you know, you'll hear he and I, you know, I'll be asking him some questions about what did grandpa think of this or, you know, stuff like that. And it was, so it was just a really uh, honestly just an awesome opportunity to sit down with my dad and find out more about him. Um, you know, I've always known kind of where he worked and the restaurants he worked at and things like that. But to be able to find some, find out some of the details of how he got to that job or how he came to open that restaurant or what happened when he had to close the restaurant, whatever it was, it was just really interesting. Um, a podcast is a great ex- excuse to learn more about your parents. So maybe you should start a podcast and interview your parents. It's a, it's a kind of a fun experience. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I've been talking a lot this week with people in the industry around town, and we are, well, uh, I guess I'll, let me let me give you kind of the context for it. Um, the Eat Local CMY card, it's been great. I'm so thrilled for everybody that's purchased them this year, and more importantly, that have gone to locally owned restaurants and used them. We're trying to explore new ways to get the word out about all the restaurants that are participating on it because there's some restaurants where they tell us it's used, you know, more, you know, four or five times a week and some restaurants that say they've only had it used once or twice since they've been on the card for the whole year. So I'm, all, I'm trying to find new ways to uh, promote those restaurants that are on the card and let everyone know especially the card holders, who's on the card and, and where they can use it. So you'll see here in the next month or so, we have some, uh, well, we have the new card that's coming out. Michelle McGrady designed it. She did a phenomenal job with the design of it, way beyond what I thought it was going to be. And uh, she just really knocked it out of the park. And so now we're going to have these really bright and colorful stickers, window stickers outside of each restaurant that's participating. So that way you'll be able to see when you walk in the door who's on the card. Uh, We also are working to, on our website, have a map where it shows each participating restaurant where they're at in the area. You can even click a button and just get directions right to their website. Uh, Along with that full list of all the participating restaurants. Um, So we just got some fun ways that we're trying to get the word out about the participating restaurants. Uh, If you don't know, you know, the current Eat Local CMY card expires at the end of September. So come October 1st, that card that you have now will not work to get you that $5 discount. Uh, You'll have to have the new Eat Local CMY card, which is coming out. We're going to start releasing them in September. 
and these cards are going to be good for uh, over a year. They're going to be uh, valid until December 31st of 2020. So you're going to have over a year to use this card. And that's just kind of how it works. Every year we're going to have a new card out. You know, it's just kind of a different take. Um, it's not as kind of a cumbersome take on the save around coupon books where you have to rip out a coupon and go in and yada, yada, yada. This is just simple. It's $5 off. It's a plastic card you carry. You show it when you spend 25 bucks. That's it. Uh, so we're going to have those out. But talking to uh, some different, you know, I've been going around and talking to some different restaurant owners about the card and letting them know what it looks like and giving them their window stickers and all those fun things. And it's no uh, surprise that summertime, summer months in Syracuse are hard for restaurants, uh, for restaurant owners. You know, not only are college students gone, they're back home when they're not in session, uh, but you don't have the sporting events that bring in a bunch of tourists. You know, you also have the hit of different events and festivals that are going on downtown that do affect things. I'm thrilled to see the food truck rally on Wednesdays in Clinton Square, but that also affects business downtown uh, to a very small extent, but to some extent. And so restaurant owners are talking more and more about, you know, or they're asking me, hey, have you heard anything? Or is everybody else also having problems? Is everybody else down? What are they doing about it? And, you know, more and more, I just was talking to a friend today who owns a restaurant and he was sharing a Facebook post from a different restaurant saying how they're going to be closed now four days a week um, until the fall. You know, so business just must be slow enough that it's obviously le- it's going to be cheaper for them to be closed those four days and not have the staffing, not have, you know, that $12, whatever it is an hour they're paying their, their staff to be there, not having the electricity, whatever the case is, they're saving money by doing it. And so he was just asking me, you know, we were talking about that. And like I said, some other restaurant owners have been asking me what people are doing. This restaurant that's closing down four days a week until the fall, they also have a a really bad social media presence. They don't take good pictures of their product and put it out there. They don't post consistently on Facebook or Twitter. I don't know why they even have a Twitter account. Um, My opinion, Twitter accounts for... Local restaurants don't work. I would not advise doing it. I would advise putting your efforts into taking that time and putting it into Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or a YouTube channel or your own podcast, something else. But anyways, they just don't do a good job of posting. And I, and I was as I was thinking about it and commenting on it, I was thinking, I wonder if they had been putting more effort into their their own advertising, to their own content creation, if they would have the business they need to not be closed those four days a week. It's not really a great restaurant, to be uh, completely frank, and so it's not like a bunch of customers are going to be upset that they're closed four days a week. Um, But I wonder if they did a better job of, of their own content creation and advertising if they could stay open those four days. Now, hopefully this is something that it is just a transitional phase and here in a month and a half or two months when you know everybody's back at SU and the other surrounding schools that enough business comes in that they can open back up you know those six seven days a week and everything's fine and hopefully this is not just a sign that they're going to close altogether 
But no matter what it is, again, I've said it, this is the third time, they could be doing a better job with their content creation and advertising. So here's my advice to anybody who's listening, whether you are the social media manager at a restaurant, whether you have a social media company yourself and do it for restaurants or businesses, whether you're a restaurant owner yourself that's listening to this. You don't have to go out and buy a camera, but I suggest you do. You could you could do this from your phone, but start taking better pictures of your drinks, of your food, of the inside of your restaurant, of all of that. Just take really good pictures. If you you could do it from your phone, but again, I suggest getting a camera. Email me, Anthony, eat local CMY. I'll be more than happy to take you through and show you which camera to get, what price to pay for it, where to buy it, how to use it. I'll do it all free of charge for you. But start taking better pictures of your food, your drinks inside of your restaurant. Start featuring your employees on your social media. Do a weekly employee shout out. You know, take a picture of them, put it on your Facebook, your Instagram, your whatever page, and, you know, let your fans, let your followers know some interesting facts about them. Show your appreciation for your staff that way. Uh, maybe start a video series. This is something that's huge video content. It's been big in the rest of the world. It's Syracuse is starting to catch on. Central New, York, Central New York is starting to catch on little by little. There's a few restaurants that have start that have been doing video content. You need to get on the bandwagon of video content. Start making videos, whether it's just a day in the life where one day a week for a couple hours you walk around your restaurant recording everything and having those conversations, show yourself having meetings, show yourself taking emails on, you know, catering, uh, you know, questions and all that kind of stuff. Just do a day in the life, start a YouTube channel with it, put that video on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram watch, maybe start a recipe video series. Once a week you do an overview, overhead tasty style, you know, recipe video, Give out your recipes of some of your favorite things, your fan favorites on your menu. Put those out there. Whatever it is, just start creating content. I mean, social media is free. Yes, it does cost your time, but you're working hard anyways. If there's, you know, restaurant owners are putting in 80, 100 hours a week. Okay, maybe delegate something else. You know, delegate the schedule. I don't know, you know. Delegate something else to give yourself two to three hours a week to put into better advertising your restaurant. And if you do that, maybe you won't, you know, have those slow times in the summer. Maybe you won't need to be closing four days a week until students come back. I guess my point is that there's so much more that we could all be doing to advertise our businesses. You don't need to spend a lot of money on this. Um... In most cases, you don't need to spend any money on this. And these are all things that you could just start doing, and they only cost time. If you don't, don't use the excuse if you don't know how to do something. YouTube and Google exist, and you can teach yourself how to do any number of things from everything I just mentioned to many more. So go spend time on YouTube and watch videos on how to, you know, create a video for a restaurant how to edit a video, how to take better food photography, whatever it is. Again, if you need help with any of this, it's free of charge. Email me, anthony at eatlocalcny. I would love to help you grow. All right. 
my rant is over, and without further ado, here is my conversation with my dad, Robert Tringale. All right, well, in this podcast, we're sitting down with my dad. Uh, his name's Robert Tringale, and um, you've probably, there's definitely a couple restaurants in Syracuse um, that you've probably had the food at, and you probably liked it, liked that food a lot, and didn't know it, but you're having his recipes. And um, we won't name those restaurants just yet. We'll get to that later. But I thought it would be interesting to have you on the podcast because of, obviously, your history in the restaurant industry. And, um, you know, there's, there's people listening to the podcast who are, you know, not involved in the industry, but most of the people are chefs or restaurant owners or that kind of stuff. So I thought it might be interesting for them to kind of hear your, you know, trajectory through the industry and how they can get jobs and all that kind of stuff. So for those of the people, the listeners who don't know, how did you first get started in the industry? Like what school, did, what college did you go to out of high school? Well, I graduated from Bryant College at the time. It's now Bryant University. And uh, my major was actually business administration with a major concentration in hospitality. Let's pull the mic a little bit closer to you. And um, uh, so that's, that was, that's my education. I bachelor's degree in it. And where's Bryant? Bryant's in, uh, it was started out in downtown Providence, Rhode Island, and then moved like it would be from here to Cicero, when it wound up a little bit north of Providence. What other, it's, is it Johnson and Wales that's also in Providence? Yeah, Johnson and Wales is in Providence, great culinary school. And uh, back in the day, I won't, I won't age myself exactly right here, but uh, they weren't real well known at the time. Johnson and Wales wasn't? Johnson and Wales yeah. was not. At least I didn't know about it. So, um, you know, the premier school has always been Cornell for management, for, for hospitality management, their hotel school, very, very good, very famous school. And of course the CIA for culinary. And that's, I mean, your degree was in hospitality management? Well, it was actually business administration with a concentration in hospitality management. Yeah. And so that was, you graduated in what, 74, 75? Yeah, 1974 I graduated. And what was your first job out of the gates from that? I sold roofing and siding. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was a pretty tough time in the industry. And uh, hotel companies came into campus to interview, which they typically do. And uh, we didn't have a large class. I think we were the first graduating class out of the hospitality program. And um, well, What made you choose like business administration with the concentration in hospitality? Well, I actually started out as a marketing major. Mm. And uh, I went sour on that when I found out that really to do anything in marketing, I would wind up having to go to grad school. Mm. So I wanted to do my four years and get out. Uh, and make my idea was uh, I'm going to point me in the right direction. I want to go make money. Did Grandpa go to college? No. Um, my father's uh, first-generation uh, uh, American. His father actually had his college tuition money saved. Uh, a friend came and borrowed it and never paid it back. Hmm. So he wound up graduating from vocational high school as a draftsman. Um, he did. Uh, he wound up in the uh, He was a mechanic, owned a garage <clears throat> with uh, a guy by the name of uh, Alloy, which is a big name. Was a big name in Syracuse. I don't know if there's any 
left. And uh, from there, he wound up in the jukebox and pinball machine business, hmm. which was uh, very interesting. He did that for 40 years with the same partner. Grandpa did. Yep. Yeah. And, I mean, that was a pretty successful business, obviously. Extremely. Yeah. You know, the days, like, uh, they went into business in 1938. The 40s and the 50s, early 50s to mid-50s, was uh, they allowed, well, payoff pinball machines. Eventually, they made them illegal. But it was a, technically a form of gambling. And uh, it was huge business. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, just because the Yeah, that's good. There. So grandpa didn't go to school. Grandma obviously didn't go to school, right? No, she had to leave before. Um, I, she might have gone to one or two years of high school and had to leave because uh, she had a sister who was sick. Mm-hmm. Both parents were working, so she had to take care of her sister. Yeah. So you, so you graduated and you were selling siding and roofing. Were you back here? No, I actually moved to Boston. Okay. Uh, I came back for, you know, I just graduated, took a couple months off, wound up going back to Boston, moved in with uh, two other guys uh, from, that I knew from Bryant that actually had graduated ahead of me hmm. and uh, was looking for a job in the industry, but it was tough. When those hotel companies came to the campus to interview, um, you know, the score was that all they were doing, we call them uh, silverware counters. Basically, you were in training, and uh, it was a start at ground zero kind of thing, which really didn't bother me a whole lot, but I just felt like there wasn't a whole lot of future in that, mm-hmm. and I was more interested in the food end of it than I was the hotel mm-hmm. end of it. So uh, I just went off and did my own thing. So you're in Boston selling roofing and siding. Yep. How long did you do that for? Not long. Um, I was probably there about nine, ten months, not quite a year. And uh, my father called me up and said, there's a restaurant here in town for sale. I think it's Mm. perfect for you. He said, why don't you come back here? We'll figure out the financing, and I'll help you out. Mm. So he actually gave me my start. Was it, uh, I mean, what did Grandpa think about you going for business administration and um, uh, hospitality management? Well, when I first went, of course, I, like I said, it was a marketing major, and um, he never, and I, have two older, I had two older brothers, and um, uh, he never really pushed us in any direction. Hmm. His only requirement of us was that we got a college education. He, he, didn't, felt, he, he, didn't, he didn't want either you or Uncle Tony or Uncle Richard to, like, stay and take over his business? Oh, he was definitely against that. Really? Yeah. He felt like he had had a great run in his business and that things were changing, and he hmm. was right. But he was off by about 10 or 15 years because with the uh, evolution of the at-home video games, mm-hmm. the coin-operated uh, business kind of did drop off. Yeah. Huh. So he, he saw it coming. Yeah. He was really a guy before his time. Mm-hmm. He, he did a couple things that were real interesting before his time and, and uh, made, made some great money. And then it, because he was so far out of himself, uh, he couldn't keep all the money he made, put it that way. <laughs> So you come back, and that was, at the time, Grimlow's Diner, right? Yeah, I came back. Uh, Grimlow's uh, was, a, was a diner on West Genesee Street, um, one door away from Kerner Ford next to Louis Goodman Chrysler. People from that era will remember that. Yeah. That was all uh, automobile row, Yeah, and still is today, but there was no uh, suburban dealers then. Mm-hmm. Everything was right there. And um, 
uh, Grimlow was originally a silver diner, hmm. just like the gem. Yeah. Uh, the man who owned it, his name was um, uh, Ernie Lewis, and uh, he had one son, and uh, Ernie uh, passed away while he owned it, and uh, he hmm. made his son promise him that he would run the diner for his mother. Hmm. Um, only trouble was his son uh, was actually a, a, a graphic artist, graduated from SU and wanted no part of the business. <laughs> so needless to say, you know, absentee ownership is yeah. tough. It really went downhill. But it was there for a long time. Mm. So when I got a hold of it, it had it, been changed out. Um, they built a new building that still sits there today. I think it's 835 West Genesee Street. And um, they took the Silver Diner and sold that off and carted it away because mm. those were made in factories and you could move them. Yeah. That was pretty common around that time, right? Yeah, the, through the 40s and 50s, that was the name of the game. Yeah. So do you remember how much you bought the restaurant for? Yeah. The price on the restaurant was $125,000 lock, stock, and barrel. Really? Yep. I'm surprised. That was. The, I mean, it was the 70s, I guess, but still. Yeah. What was the economy like at that time? It was a little rough in Syracuse. Was uh, it? Wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad. Uh, we hadn't lost the blue-collar stuff yet. Um, but, you know... Regardless of the economy, if you know what you're doing and you know marketing, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you can attest to, um, you should be able to weather the storms. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. You know, I was fresh out of college. I knew the technical part of the business from school. I didn't know the people part of the business well enough yet. And did you change the name right away? No. I operated two years as Grimla's, which was probably a mistake because it had a bad rep. Yeah. It was a 24-7 diner and, uh, you know, we're eight blocks off the center of downtown and, you know, the clientele on the third shift wasn't great. Yeah. And that just, it just uh, lent itself to n- not being a place that, you know, people really wanted to go. So uh, I operated two years as Grimlow, and then I changed the name to a real, real complicated, real, you know, high-profile high name, Bobby T's <laughs> Family Restaurant. How long did you have it under Bobby T's? Two years. I was there about four years. Really? Yeah. So you were there into, what, 1980, nine? No, not quite that far. I was uh, I bought it in '74, and mm. um, I owned it through se- through the end of '77, okay. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So when you changed the name over, did you still stay 24/7, or did you change that? No, I stayed 24/7, hmm. and that was rough. Uh, you know, I used to, you know, and, and it's true in the restaurant industry. I worked 80 to 100 hours a week. Yeah. Um, there were nights I slept on stack chairs in my office. And I would, uh, I would be there every third shift on Fridays and Saturdays. Hmm. Um, then uh, um, during the week, like every third week or so, or at least one week a month, I would be there uh, for that whole week on third shift because hmm. it just it needed oversight. Yeah. You know? So you have the diner. And, I mean, what was the, was the gym around? Yeah, gym was open, gym going was strong. Open. Yeah. There was a couple places. There was another place uh probably in about the 500 block of West Genesee Street just before the viaduct. Hmm. Um, that was a diner. There was one around the corner on Geddes Street. Hmm. Um, there, were, there were a lot of little shops, and Poodles and Gyms was still there hmm. on Salina Street. Yeah. What was downtown like? I mean, was that a big restaurant scene? Not so much a big restaurant scene at night, but there were those places. You know, there was a place called the Brass Rail on Warren Street, which was famous for corned beef and pastrami. Hmm. Um, 
There are those kinds of places. There wasn't as much pizza in town at that time. Mm. There was a lot, but not as much as there is today. Yeah. Um, there was a place downtown on Warren Street called the Toddle House, mm. which was actually, um, it was a national, I don't know if it was a chain, I think it was a franchise. Mm. But it was a lot like, you know, when you go down south, you see uh, the Waffle House kind of thing. Yeah. There was that. There was uh, the, the, the White Tower um, uh, hamburger stands. Mm. Downtown there was a few of them. A few of those basically like a white castle yeah yeah it was a, it was definitely a spin off of that yeah hmm. so i mean that was probably i'd imagine the like i think of what rest like what the restaurant scene was in the 70s and it was probably more so like hamburger joints and diners and then i'd guess like your kind of late night stuff yeah there was but there was all you know there was a strong italian influence at that point in time too um, you know, Grimaldi's was mm-hmm. on Erie Boulevard East at the time, and that's the original, the, the, yeah. the guy from Utica, of which the people that work for him, there's probably been seven or eight of them that have gone out on their own from yeah. there. So he trained a lot of people. Um, and I knew a lot of, you know, because of my dad's business, I knew a lot of people in the industry, restaurant owners who were, some who were chefs, some who were not. He had a restaurant in his building on Charles Avenue in Salve called the Candlelight Inn. Hmm and uh, was owned by a man by the name of John Malitti. Uh John's brother Vito actually started the in-between. Hmm. Uh, he's, he was the first guy in that building. So, And those were, uh, the Candlelight Inn was actually an Italian menu. Yeah. Um, the Tassones were still, you know, they were in the yeah. business at the time. They had, a, they had a restaurant combination bakery on Park, hmm. on, uh, Park where all the uh, highway is and all the viaducts there by the, by the mall. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know there was there was a lot of food competition. Tom's the the clam bar, yeah, that was there then. Mm, uh, there was a lot wild. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you had that, and then you sold it, right? Yeah. Well, I actually went went out of business. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I tried to keep afloat as long as I could. I went out of business. I did not bankrupt. I just we just shut the doors. Yeah. But we owned the property, my dad and I. And uh, we kept it, in, and uh, I immediately started interviewing out of t- uh, for jobs uh, out of town. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like I needed to go the corporate route at that point. I had the education for it, uh, the degree, and I had the experience having owned my own for basically four years. Yeah. Uh, because I, I actually worked at Grimlow for about three or four months before the purchase actually oh, occurred. Okay. So I was there. I was there about four years. Hmm. And. Um so what was that job after you shut down? First one was uh, for a chain called Mr. Steak. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, that was like a Kirby's, right? Yeah. Matter of fact, Kirby's is what Mr. Steak became. The local franchisee of Mr. Steak, when Mr. Steak went out of business, changed it over to Kirby's. Hmm. Um, so it was a sit-down, you know, choice beef uh, no salad bar because, you know, the competition in that field was Ponderosa and Bonanza at the time for the, with the big food bars and salad bars. And their, their meat product was not choice. It was all, you know, treated meat, uh, tenderized and stuff. So Mr. Steak, at the, at the height of Mr. Steak, they had about close to 400 restaurants nationally. Hmm. Um, most of them were franchised. Uh, I think we were right around 100 were company-owned. Hmm. It did not have a strong presence in the east. Yeah. You know. So I went to work for them. I was supposed to go up to the northwest of the country in Oregon uh, to manage a company-owned restaurant. And while I was in training for them, uh, they changed their plans. 
and instead they sold that to a franchise group, hmm. and they decided to not open any more company-owned restaurants. So they wound up, uh, they offered me a job in their quality assurance department, which meant, uh, and I did opening. So for them, I traveled the country. Uh, I inspected, uh, you know, existing restaurants to make sure that all the standards were kept up. And I opened new units for hmm. franchisees, hmm. a couple of company owned, but yeah. mostly franchised. Where was the, where were their headquartered out of? Uh, Denver. Denver. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then where was your, like, where were you based out of when you were working for them out of the training? Um, well, Denver was, a, it was crazy. Denver was like a three month training program, hmm. which I thought was real redundant for someone who owned his own place for four years, but yeah. I did it anyway. And, um, was that I, like a lot of basics, like how to, like how to, or was it more like their company stuff? Yeah. You know, anybody who's familiar with the change, you know, it's like McDonald's hamburger university kind of thing. You know, yeah. they, they teach you all about their product and their menu. Uh, they teach you their paperwork system, um, you know, what their standards are. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, you know, I, I actually, um, home based out of Northern Virginia, but I flew into Denver on a regular basis. So in that, I, I was it for about a two-year period, two-and-a-half-year period between Mr. Stake and the next job was with Holiday Inn corporately out mm. of Memphis, Tennessee. I didn't even have a, have my own residence. Mm. I, uh, I lived with my brother and his wife in northern Virginia. I was home five nights, not consecutively, in five months. Yeah. You know, always mm. on the road. And uh, even with Holiday Inn. When I had time off, when I wasn't on the road, I stayed in the Holiday Inn. <laughs> All my stuff was in storage. So, you know, when you were talking about the training, kind of the redundancy, it just kind of made me think. Well, I guess, I don't know. I mean, what was the reason that you closed Bobby T's? Was it just, I mean, obviously it was lack of business. But, you know, when you were in the training program, do you think, like, was there things that you were learning that you were thinking if I knew that, maybe Bobby T's would have stayed open, or was it just the climate at the time? It's a good question. I think it was it was a combination of things. It was um, number one, the the famous famous problem in the industry, and I was undercapitalized. Mm. The day I took over Grimlow's, there was about two hundred dollars in the safe, and mm. that's what I started with. Wow. So when I look back on that, I was really behind the eight ball, and I didn't understand that. Yeah. You know, so, um, and, and my dad did help me with, with the purchase and all. Yeah. But I never used him as a bank. I never went back to the well. I wouldn't do that. So I just, you know, I tried to tough it out. Yeah. Um, the things that uh, I found out where I made my mistakes was with people, with staff. Mm-hmm. Okay. I understood hospitality. Um, I was always had a bent toward that. That's just kind of my character. But um, because of other events that happened in my life, that actually became more pronounced as I got older. Matter of fact, at the end of when I had the diner on Genesee Street, um, I had I had uh, uh, some people would call it a religious experience. I had an experience um, with Christ, and uh, that kind of set me on the road where. Uh, the hospitality that was already in me and in my character um, became pronounced. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a disciple of hospitality and the industry from the standpoint of don't worry about the money, take care of the customer. Yeah. You know, but uh, 
employees, it's crazy. Um, I was uh, doing a corporate chef. Uh, I had a, held a corporate chef position for about a year for Syracuse Banana, and I had to go visit the Holiday Inn in Liverpool. So mm-hmm. I go out to call on the chef there, Juan, and a uh, real great guy. And uh, so we sit down and we start talking, and, and he's very respectful and treating me great. You know, and we're talking. And for some reason, I got onto the story about Grimlow's and Bobby T's. He goes, man, he says, I used to work there. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He says, no. He says, I was a third shift cook. He says, as a matter of fact, the guy who owned it was a real young guy. And when I wouldn't show up for work, he'd come find me. <laughs> I said, Juan, that was me. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really funny. Huh. So, all right, so you're at Mr. Steak, and how many years were you there? Uh, I was there about a, a little over a year, but a year, year and a half, and I got recruited by Holiday Inn okay. to do almost the same kind of thing. Yeah. Holiday Inn had decided to um, start a division called Pipers, Okay. Uh, very similar to like a Denny's or a Perkins, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they had uh, four levels of of um, food and beverage in their hotels, four being the highest where they had, a, you know, a high-profile executive chef. One, two, and three led up to that. Mm. So they wanted to take Pipers and inject the Piper system in the Holiday Inn restaurant mm. uh, in those levels one, two, and three. So uh, they they recruited me. They taught, uh, they taught uh, there were many of us, taught us the Piper system, and brought in the F&B directors from the hotels to teach them the system. Hmm. And the F&B directors went back to their properties, and then we went out and helped them install it. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I wonder, I mean, were the uh, were the restaurants, were Pipers connected to the Holiday Inns? Yeah, they were in them. They were in them. Okay, yeah. all right. They went right into those dining rooms, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and they had, had they ever had the restaurants before that, or was it just kind of like a rebranding of Pipers, or were they the first ones that they were ever doing? No, Pipers was was the beginning. The first one was actually in Austin, Texas, hmm. and it was actually a detached building hmm. that they built a freestander because their intent was to bring Pipers into the hotels, hmm. develop a reputation, and then it, and then almost simultaneously start a freestanding chain. Hmm. They found that to be too expensive, and they wound up um, buying Perkins. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So how many years were you there? Uh, a little over a year. Okay. So between those two jobs, it was about close to three years. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're, when you're at Holiday Inn, that's when you meet mom, right? Yeah. Well, um, I was with Holiday Inn corporate doing the Pipers thing. And when they decided they were going to shut Pipers down, uh, they took the, they took several of us that they wanted to keep and offered us uh, F&B jobs, hmm. you know, and, and different properties and the company-owned properties, which I really didn't want to do because um, their system was they really didn't have an F&B. They had an assistant manager who was responsible for the F&B. So their system really was we're going we're gonna to teach you the hotel side. And, again, I really didn't want to be part of the hotel side. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I couldn't even explain why. I just I just didn't think that that was challenging enough, I guess. So um, uh, um, with Pipers uh, shutting down, um, there are franchise, or I should say management companies that operated Holiday Inns for set ownership. So uh, like a, a group would be put together in a form of an LLC, they would either build or buy an existing Holiday Inn. They didn't, have, they didn't want anything to do with running it. And then there were management companies that would go in and operate. 
hmm. under contract. So Weingartner Hammonds, WHI, which was based in Cincinnati, was an operator of about 45 or 50 of those. Matter of fact, they were the operators of all the Holiday Inns in Syracuse for years. Hmm. So uh, they they came, uh, they were looking for, they were reorganizing, and they wanted to have a, a district, uh, a regional office um, with a regional manager, a regional food guy, a regional trainer, and a regional sales department. Hmm. Uh, and they, they created, I think there were five or six of these regions and I wound up going to work for them uh, and I was based in Lexington Kentucky that's where I met your mother yeah so was that time including your one year at Holiday Inn or were you there at Holiday Inn and then you went over to Weingartner yep yeah Yeah, it was kind of like an internal transfer actually yeah and how long were you with Weingartner uh that's a great question I forget the timing let's see it was probably about two years, because when we got married in 1980, uh, I was working for them. And then shortly after that, I got recruited by the group in Washington, D.C. for Pizzeria Uno. So I always tell people this, and I'm pr- probably been saying it incorrectly, but I always tell people that you were a part owner in the first ever franchise Pizzeria Uno in the country. Well, technically, I, I was. It was actually um, the second franchise ever sold, but the first one opened. Hmm. It was in, it's in Georgetown. It's still there. Oh, really? Yeah. And when they recruited me, it was a requirement in the franchise agreement that whoever uh, the director of operations was had to have 10% ownership, minimum. Hmm. Yeah. So you got recruited by them. Yeah, I got, re- got recruited by them. There was, a, there was a group of about seven businessmen that brought you know, uh, that franchise into Georgetown. Hmm. And um, you know, being the first... You know, the, the, first of all, the Uno's franchise, you have to understand, even though it was a Chicago, famous Chicago pizzeria, you know, Uno and Due in Chicago, they were not the franchisor. Mm. Uh, there was a man in Boston who owned uh, 25 KFC franchises mm. through New England and a very wealthy guy. And uh, he pestered Ike Sewell, the founder of, of Uno's. He pestered him until he agreed mm. to license it out. So we're being, you know, one of the first franchises open. They didn't even have one of their own open. Mm. Um, obviously, we were a real testing ground. Yeah, you know, sure. they were. So I didn't get involved with that until they had been open about seven or eight months. Mm. And they quickly recruited me because they were losing money hand over fist. Was Craig Miller in, involved in that from the beginning? Yeah, Craig was. He did all the – Craig, you know, is a – at the time was a very well-known interior uh, designer and uh, did a lot of congressional work mm-hmm. in the Capitol building. And um, he, w- he did the inside of the Unos, and they couldn't pay him. Hmm. So he took ownership, and he wound up being chairman of the board. <laughs> so they were losing money, and he knew me through my brother, and uh, he recruited me there. I said, well, I'll come take a look, but I really don't – I'm not interested in being in the pizza business, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm thinking pizzeria, yeah. you know. And uh, uh, I, have been, I had been to Chicago and heard about Uno's, but I had not really never been in that original Uno's uh, at that point. So uh, they flew me from, they flew your mom and I uh, from um, Lexington up to D.C. And uh, we went in. Ronald Reagan had just been elected president. Uh, it's 1980. And um, they brought the pizza to the table, and I took one bite, and I said, I'm in. <laughs> It's a great product. Yeah. So how long were you there at Pizzeria Uno? 
we were there, let me think, we were there about a year. Um, we, it was a disaster. We had a disastrous occurrence. Um, I, a lot of things occurred. I had to really change the operation around. Uh, the management structure was way top-heavy. I had to change all that. I brought in uh, a man that I had worked with both at Mr. Steak and at Holiday Inn who knew his stuff. I brought him in. I was the DL. I was the director of operations for the group because we had the rights to all Washington, Baltimore. Hmm. And um, so I brought him to operate the first one, and I knew that he would wind up being a multi-unit operator. He had that experience. And uh, so uh, I brought him in, and when, when uh, on a Sunday afternoon, we had an armed robbery. Hmm. And the restaurant had just opened. And during the armed robbery, a waiter got shot. Oh. And he wound up losing about seven, eight feet of his intestines in surgery. Wow. Um, the way that the ownership responded to that, because by that point in time, Craig was no longer chairman of the board. He was actually getting bought out. Mm. Uh, the three minority partners became the majority partners. And they were okay people. They were good people. But the, the response to the shooting was like CYA, mm. you know. And uh, I couldn't take it. So I we parted ways. Yeah. So you were there for a year, and is that when you left the industry? Well, not really, because when we moved, we moved back to uh, northern Kentucky, and um, your brother, your oldest brother, was actually born in northern Virginia, mm-hmm. so he was alive when we moved. And um, uh, we went back, and uh, I actually st- had the idea to start consulting, so I went back to Weingartner Hammonds, and uh, they were in the pro- they were in the throes of changes. And I probably I know I could have gone back to work for them. Eventually, the vice president of food and beverage left them, mm. and that was a slot that I probably could have moved into very easily. But uh, I didn't want an F and B job again, mm-hmm. you know, because they had the same setup. You know, be an, uh, an AGM of a hotel. So. Uh, I actually approached them about because I said, "What if I, you use me on a consulting basis, wherever you got food cost problems uh, or labor problems, and I'll go in and see, you know, what I can find out and try to fix them." Hmm. So I did that for for WHI for a while. What's a while? Uh, I did it until I got tired of it. Yeah, <laughs> I was. I don't know. I did that probably for uh, probably about a year and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah, All or right. two, something like that. Is that when you went over to insurance? Yeah. Okay. Well, what happened was the consulting business actually started to expand beyond Weingartner Hammonds, and um, were you I, set up as a, as a like a business doing that for them, or were you like? No, I was just it was just freelancing. I okay. actually would it was actually undercover. It's kind of like um, undercover boss. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would go in and get hired hmm. by without their management even knowing it, hmm. and I would get hired. And then I would try to root out where the problems were. Mm. Okay, so I was collecting a paycheck for being a cook, <laughs> and, a lot, and a couple of times I got promoted. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I did the same thing for Ground Round mm. because the old vice president at WHI wound up going to Ground Round, mm. and he used me that way. There was a Ground Round in Florence, Kentucky, that was having issues. So you know that, that's how that all started. But I started moving over into in, the doing consulting for independents. And um, I realized that there was a real gap 
with these people as far as not only understanding P&L statements and balance sheets, but also protecting themselves financially and, um, and how they would pass that business on, either to sell it mm-hmm. or to have the next generation take it over. Yeah. So my oldest brother, having been uh, you know, in the financial industry mm-hmm. since college, yeah. he knew all that stuff. Um, and I got a little bit of education from him and that, and I also started, uh, selling, um, health insurance. Prudential had, um, used Cincinnati as their first test market for HMOs. Hmm. So because I had a client base, they wanted me to go sell, you know, their, their health product. That's how all that integrated. Okay. You know, it's funny just talking about like, you know, uncle Tony who had, you know the financial and like te- nobody knew anything about profit and loss statements and f- the financial i was on the syracuse.com it's actually not going to be any longer but brent axe who's a big sports you know newscaster around here um i think he's on the local espn radio but anyways he had a podcast called stick to syracuse as of right now it still exists in like two episodes they're going he went from like a sports theme to then business and music in syracuse now they're having him go back to sports because i don't know why but um anyways i was on his podcast he interviewed me and i did say something stupid he asked me about chain restaurants and uh you know what i thought about them and i said you know listen i go to dunkin donuts sometimes and you know stuff like that nobody really cares about that except for my boss but (laughs) um so i was going to say I think chain restaurants do a much better job because they have, you know, CEOs and see people with their MBA, you know, people who are calling the shots, you know, marketing companies and things like that. Somebody opens up a small business, small restaurant, one off restaurant. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about or doing. They don't know anything about finances or very little or marketing. Obviously this is a, that's a very broad statement for an entire industry. And it's probably only a few, but, you know, it, it goes to reason that, um, you know, there's people out there that are running restaurants that are just opening it because they have a hope or a dream or want to go work for themselves and t- get this money out. But they don't really know what it takes to run a business mm. or how to get business. Um, you know, I think of that one person, you know, I met when my Eat Locals first started. You know, a friend told, called me and said, you need to go talk to her. She needs desperate help with marketing. When I went and met with her, she had just spent her last $500 on a Clipper magazine ad oh. and didn't get any business from it. And she was telling me her story of how she got started. And she was like, I made this. And all my friends and family said I made the best one they'd ever had. And everybody kept telling me I should open a restaurant. And I've always wanted to own, own a restaurant and just cook for people and work that way. And so she did it. But she had, she was in one of the worst locations in Syracuse, you know, making a bad decision to spend $500 on clip, you know, and now she's out of business, but it's just amazing how many people go into the restaurant industry as owners and don't know anything about, or know very little about those things. Yeah. And you know, there's different motivations, right? So there's, you know, chef owners are kind of a different breed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and me being a chef, obviously, you know, it's a creative thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we work with our hands um, we get to, you know, build a plate 
and send it out and get immediate feedback. Yeah. And that's great. Um, you know, a carpenter or a plumber or a bricklayer, they got to wait till they go through the whole project and then, then they get their accolades. Mm-hmm. So, but, but it's the same thing. It's working with your hands and it's creativity. Yeah. And it's, uh, not just creativity. You have to be able to pull off the other part of the job, which is, okay, you're on the cook line. It's Friday night. You're going to put out 150 to 250 dinners tonight. If you're lucky. And they, right. And they all <laughs> got to be on point. Yeah, for sure. Right? And they all got to be timed right. Yeah. And it takes a crew to do that. Yeah. And the chef's responsible for that kitchen crew. Mm. So, you know, all those things come into play. So you, now you got a chef. He's creative. He's good. You know, he's really good. He can, he, can, he can knock out some killer food. All right. But what does he know about the business aspect? Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's what you're talking about. What does he know about marketing? You know, um, one, one of the things that used to bother me when I owned my first restaurant was I could never discipline myself to get ahead in my marketing plan. Mm-hmm. So I used to sit down and say, well, why aren't I planning marketing out for the next six months? Yeah. You know, why am I only doing it for the next six weeks? Right. You know, that kind of thing. Or six days yeah. in some cases. Well, what was the marketing plan like back in the 70s? Uh, it was it was print media. It was yeah. radio. Yeah. If you could afford it, television. Right. That was it. There was word of mouth. Yeah. Um, you know, you could do, you know, we did everything. We did coupons. Being on Automobile Row. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the dealerships, yeah. to the salesmen, give them, you know, tickets come in, you know, you bring in a guest, we give you a dessert or, you know, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in your, in your specials and your meal plans, those were really the draw, Yeah, you know? So like when I had the diner, uh, I decided I needed to learn how to break my own beef, how to butcher. Mm-hmm. And I had the, I had the space for it and I had the equipment for it. So um, I brought a butcher in and he taught me. He taught my head cook and I. So what I would do is I would save like the, the prime rib. I would save that cut, and then when I got enough of them, I'd run a special. Uh, hold on to your seat. I would run a soup to nuts prime rib special, mm. and each cut of prime rib had a bone in it, which means they were double cuts. Mm-hmm. Okay. For about six ninety-five. Wow. Of course, you know it's economy of scale too. Yeah. But it was cheap even then. Yeah, for sure. You know, that, and I learned a lesson from that. You can actually take a great product, price it too low, and people won't trust it. Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah, I'm not going to any of the restaurants in town and having any sort of a prime rib special. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, it's, and, you know, part of it is for that reason, because I know that they're, you know, I mean, you know, there's very few restaurants, especially today, if any in this area, that are going to buy like a great product and then put it on some ridiculous sale. Right. You know, right. Um, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. When, well, when I was breaking my own beef, I mean, you know, my costs were way down cause yeah. we, we had the equipment and we were taught how to utilize the entire side of beef. Yeah. You know, and back then we didn't use soup bases. We had stock pots on the stove all day and night yeah. long. So we used all that. Yeah. You know, all right, so you're in northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. You're doing the consulting, and you're, now you're, you know, also selling the health insurance through Prudential. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when you made the transition into insurance. Yeah, yeah. they kind of, they actually roped me into the life business, but you know, which was fine. It was okay for a while. I still did a little bit of restaurant consulting during that time period, but I never really marketed it. And how many years were you at Prudential? 
Oh, wow. Well, between Prudential and the next company, probably a total of, uh, I'd say, three or four. Hmm. Yeah. And then where'd you go from there? Um, I actually just kicked up the consulting business yeah. again. Because you weren't back into actually in a kitchen, right, until... The, yeah, well, I, I, I did some of the kitchen stuff then. But, um, the consul- you know, I bought the restaurant yeah. in northern Kentucky and turned it into, a, you know, the old chili, the the famous Cincinnati chili. It was what they call the chili parlor. It was a chili restaurant. What was the name of that place? Did um, it start with an S? I forget the name of it now. But anyway, um, I turned that into a diner, into a New York-style yeah. diner. And you what, remember that? Yeah, what year was that? I don't know. What were you, seven, eight years old? I don't remember. I've always... The years that my stories of it have fluctuated from like seven to eleven, but I forget how many years existed before. Well, Gabe and Robert started high started Heritage. Yeah, and I didn't have it then. No, shortly after, or maybe a year after. So Robert yeah. had to. Robert started Heritage when he was a freshman. Yeah. So Robert had to have been a sophomore. Um, and yeah, so I was, Gabe a, was eighth, a, eighth grade, and I was four years behind Gabe. Yeah. So I would have been fourth grade. I don't know how old you are on your fourth grade, but yeah, I would have been around fourth grade when you opened it. Yeah. And so that was, Jesus, what was that? Well, if you were, if you were eight, you were born in, um, yeah, let's say it was six. Yeah, yeah. So it was 92, 94, 94 somewhere in there. Um, so and I was homeschooled. That's why I said 92, everybody. Um, <laughs> so, so Sirio's Diner, right? So that was the name of the place. Yes. So what, how did that come about? How did you come up, how did you get the idea to open? I mean, had you always well, wanted been, to own a restaurant? I was actually consulting for those people. Oh, were you? Yeah. Okay. And um, they were having some issues. Uh, a husband, wife owned it. She got diagnosed with a really horrible disease and they wanted to get out. Hmm. And uh, I tried to sell it for them. I couldn't sell it for them. Um, so, you know, we just, I negotiated a deal Yeah. and, uh, I just felt like, you know, it was time to, to, to try, to try my, uh, try myself at that, you know, doing a New York style thing in Northern Kentucky, Yeah. which wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. Yeah. Yeah. There was a few months of rehabbing the inside and things like that. I know. Yeah. It was a couple months. We, we totally redid it. Uh, we made it look as much as 50-ish as we could mm-hmm. without the stainless steel. Yeah. Um, and we didn't change much on the inside. We updated equipment, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And, of course, revamped, you know, went in with a whole new menu. Did keep chili on the menu. Yeah. You could still get, you know, two ways, three ways, four ways, and chili dogs and all that. Yeah. Those of you who haven't been to Cincinnati before or ever had that before, I think actually the Wegmans around here sells Skyline chili, so you can go find it there, the canned stuff. But this weird chili just go buy a can and open it up and you'll figure it out but a two-way three-way for the all of you sicilians and italians listening um hold your breath but it's spaghetti with mustard on no 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 mustard. no mustard no it's the it's the chili the cheese and then you can keep going onions yeah, garlic onions beans but all yeah. that's on top of a bed of spaghetti yep and that's so that's that's cincinnati chili yep so it's good don't knock it till you try it. But. Yeah, well, you get you kind of get uh, an acquired. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, you know, when I first had it, I thought it was horrid. All right. And uh, after a while, you couldn't go a week without it. Yeah. So, so how long? I Cereals was open just a year, correct? Yeah. Well, a little bit, a little bit longer than a year. Okay. And um, 
I mean, I, you know, my memories are basically, I remember, you know, I forget the timing, but I, I just remember going up there midday at some point. I remember washing dishes and I, in my memory, I feel like there is stacks of dishes because we didn't have a dishwasher in the morning or there may have only been one time and I just remember doing it every day. But, and then I remember there was like a lull from like three to four. We hardly had anybody on, right? There was like no cook, no waitress, no dishwasher. Right. right. It was me. Yeah. And I remember taking orders for like kids that would walk up from heritage. Yeah. From school. Yeah. I'll never forget. I would always do it. And like, there was that one table, they would always sit in that corner booth and they never yeah. tipped. <laughs> and you went out one day and yelled at them for not tipping me. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That was, that was quite an experience. Of course you were, you were good on the video games. You learned yeah. how to open the cash register. Yeah. That may have been why the business closed. I stole <laughs> yeah, so many I quarters. And get, and get quarters. Yeah. No, actually the reason the business shut down was business wasn't great. Number one, I wasn't making the kind of money I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And I had a partner who bombed out on me. Yeah. So it was too many hours and you guys were young. Uh, mom had her business, mm-hmm. and uh, and she had just got done being sick. Did mom have bill? Or, uh, what was the name of it? Guillain-Barre. No, not the sick. The the business. Oh, uh, Billy's. It was Billy's. Yeah, well, it yeah. was Billy's too. Yeah, yeah. I so, didn't know that she had that at the same time. I don't, I don't yeah, know. it all it all overlapped. It was crazy. Yeah. So, um, but the landlord came to me and said he'd been offered a lot of money for the property, hmm. and he and I had a lease. Yeah, And he said, you know, uh, there'll be some money in this for you if you want to sell out the lease, and then I can sell out the property. Huh. So we negotiated, and that's what we did. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did it go, what did it turn into after that? Was it a car lot? No. Car lot. Yeah, it, it was a car lot, right? Some away. kind of national um, used car company. Yeah, it was like a JD by rider or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, um, I mean, what do you think about having the diner in Kentucky? I mean, because you had... Italian food. I mean, I don't think there was ever a diner like that in Kentucky. No. And, w- and what shocked me was some of the items that became the best sellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I did a frittata the right way, yeah. the real way, and it was our number one seller. Yeah. We did veggie and we did one with meat. And, uh, of course, we did, you know, my sausage recipe, yeah. that, you know, that kind of thing. But um, uh, I-, I liked doing it. Uh, we had great success with, you know, some of those food items. Mm-hmm. Um that w- that really was the food was great. It wasn't a problem with the food. It was the ingress egress in the parking lot number one. You know, and then uh, we weren't big enough. I didn't have enough seats. Mm. If I had more seats, like you know, at the busy times, mm. people aren't going to wait in line forever. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the, that was one of the issues. But we did good volume, uh, you know, and and we did some turns in there. Uh, I would love someday to to go to and get a factory built diner they still make them yeah and plant one in northern kentucky somewhere yeah you know the food trucks is basically like the modern day equivalent for that nowadays yes. yeah so there's so many companies that do a factory that you know build them like that for a lot less money <laughs> yeah well maybe not in some cases yeah those, i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna, if you're gonna go buy crazy. a diner today you're talking a million dollars if you want yeah. like 160 seats yeah and I'd, I'd imagine a food truck today is probably between like 40 to you know up upwards from that oh yeah yeah 40 is probably on the really low end yeah well they go all the way up to the to the tractor trailers yeah that have a full kitchen in the back of them you know it's amazing yeah i'd love to have i think i think i would like to have a trailer there's a place in rockland i just know because i've seen it on our eat local instagram for rockland county but 
It's called Bongo's Fries, I think. And it's basically just a trailer that he's turned. There's It's one guy that runs it. He owns it. And he's got like two deep fryers, I think. And maybe just one, but maybe I think two. But anyways, it's just French fries. Yeah. From like poutine and dessert ones to just regular ones. And that's all it is. Wow. You know, and it looks good. It doesn't look like trash like some do. Yeah. There's one here in Syracuse called Blueberries and Lace, I think. And um, I can't think of her name for the life of me, which I'm sorry because she's attended our photography class and whatnot. But anyways, she does like teas and coffees and stuff like that and pastries. And hers is a trailer. It looks good. But there's also people who be who took like old U-Hauls and turned them in the food trucks. And they just they look like trash. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So you had cereals, and then, how long was it before we moved here? Well, we uh, moved here in two thousand. Well, it was it, yeah. We moved here in two thousand. Two thousand one. Yeah. Yeah. That summer. So um, I don't know. I think we were. Out, I was out of cereals for about two years, mm-hmm. because what I did was I I started uh, through the consulting business. I actually started catering, and I made the deal with the school. Yeah to do the school lunches and then I got to use the kitchen for catering yeah. plus all the church events I got to cater. Right. So it was, it turned out pretty good that way. I yeah. didn't have a whole lot of overhead like that. Was that volunteer or did you get paid for that for the Friday night stuff? F- well, Friday night was actually volunteer, hmm. but, um, they paid for all the food yeah. obviously. And, uh, uh, I got, uh, I got a little bit of override at the school lunch kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You guys got free tuition. Yeah. And my catering I could do out of there with no overhead. Gotcha. So I didn't even have to pay a utility bill there. So. Yeah. So, and then we came to Syracuse. Yep. And we came back here because of your grandparents. Yeah. You know, grandpa was uh, bedridden. Yeah. And uh, grandma was all alone. Yeah. Um, well, grandpa was at St. Camillus, right? Yeah, but he was bedridden. And yeah. Then, and then he was, he was there... I forget. We took him home, and we came up here in uh, August of that year because you had to start school. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mom was finishing up a job for, for a chiropractor down in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we came up to get you in a school. And um, see, we went through the winter, right? No, that November. It was that very November we took Grandpa home. So we came here, Grandpa comes home in November, and then was your first restaurant thing up here, Francesca's? Yes. Trying to remember. Yes, I think it was. So we knew the family through Grandpa. They used to, right? Right. Well, that's the Angeloro family. Yeah. And uh, George, young George, who owns Francesca's, um, his grandfather was Julie Angeloro. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and the corner of, uh, of uh, North Salina and Butternut, uh, there's a building, I think there's a rent center in it now. Um, he had a business called W.O. Zishang, hmm. and it was uh, a sports, uh, like fishing, you go there, oh, buy okay. fishing stuff and, yeah. and guns and, and, and hunting rifles. He was the Remington dealer for the whole Northeast really? for a while. Yeah, he was, he, he was uh, you know, very big in that. Huh. And he had originally started out in the in the jukebox and pinball machine business. Right. Oh, okay. So when he married his wife, who was Frances, yeah, that's who the restaurant's named after, Francesca. Mm. Um, he said, "What do you want for a wedding gift?" And she said, "I want you to sell that business <laughs> because it had the overtones of mafia and all that, you know, gambling and all that stuff." Yeah. So my father bought it from him. 
Oh, really? Yeah, Dad and um, and his partner Fred Stott from Auburn. Um, they bought that route, so mm. they bought two or three routes and combined them over yeah. the years. But uh, that was, and they remained good friends. As a matter of fact, Julie Angeloro is your uncle Tony's godfather. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So um, they contacted you. Uh, I mean, how did they even know that you were back here or anything like that? Well, um, George's father, I call him Big George. Yeah. Okay. Um, he uh, kept in contact with Grandpa because he was helping him with his Medicare insurance and that kind of stuff. So um, we got talking one day, and he was telling me about his son opening the restaurant and giving me the whole history on it. And he knew my background, and he said, uh, he said why don't you come take a look at it? Mm-hmm. And that's really how it started. Aren't they aren't they brothers that opened it? Well, uh, George has a twin brother, a fraternal twin brother named Gary. Yeah, and they really weren't partners. George had a high school friend who was going to go in partnership with him, mm. and then for whatever reason that didn't work out. Yeah. So George did it on his own, and uh, I offered to um, you know help him uh, with the opening, and uh, I, I offered to be the opening chef because the chef they had lined up. Um, I, I get something happened there. I don't know what it was. Yeah. So I offered, I offered a chef for it and I had, you know, through my consulting business back in Cincinnati, I had two or three gigs there where I was a chef, Yeah. you know, the way I operated as a chef. I have no formal culinary training. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything I learned, I learned, um, either through my mother and grandmother, yeah. um, or, or experimenting on my own. But the greatest experience I had in that regard was, when I worked for Holiday and Corporate in Memphis, when we were doing the Piper's menu, uh, they they had hired several European chefs who became regional managers. Mm. And they came to the test kitchen there, and I got to work in the test kitchen with these European guys. Mm. And that was phenomenal experience. Mm. That was great experience. Yeah. So that that's how all that developed. And then I wound up, uh, I, you know, we did the, I, I did the training of the, of the first staff at Francesca's and helped hire. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that first year, we did the Festa Italiana before we opened, which yeah. was a great idea. It was great marketing. Yeah. Uh, our, bo- our booth was right next to Antonio's. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah. So we had good traffic and the food went over great. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, it was, it was a collaborative effort and, uh, you know, between, uh, the Angeloros and me, we, you know, we pulled it off. Yeah. So it was good. Yeah, I remember being in the space before it opened, and yeah. I remember being at the festival, yep. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and you got, I mean, yeah, I think I just, I remember somebody, there was a big water kettle down there, because they were making Steam gnocchi. jacketed kettle. Yeah. I made them bring it down. Right. Because <laughs> we did, we were doing gnocchi, right? vodka and gnocchis. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that, and I remember seeing the, it was my first ever experience with seeing, with knowing that if you don't watch your pot of pasta that it's going to boil over. <laughs> um, yeah, I probably turned my back a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> so, and how do you know Chance Bear? Was he work? He was working at Francesca's at the time, right? Yeah, well, I had, I had met Chance uh, through, I think, the Chef's Association. And then also I, when I was uh, helping Syracuse Banana, um, I had called on him a couple of times when he was at the restaurant in Montgomery. But that was after Francesca's, right? Uh, I, th- yeah, I think, no, I don't know. I'm not sure if it was before or after. I thought I he didn't... worked at Francesca's with you. No, not with me. He was, he was uh. a chef at Francesca's, but that was way after me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And then you, how did you, how do you know Eamon Lee? Same way through, um, uh, Maine's, you know, when Eamon was yeah. at Maine's and I met him through the chef association, a couple of meetings and stuff. Hmm. 
So, yeah, Eamon's a great guy. So yeah. is Chance. They're wonderful guys. Yeah. So you were, both of them been on the podcast. Um, so how long were you at Francesca's cooking? Like, what, six months? Well, no. Uh, my deal was, you know, at the time I was 140, 150 pounds heavier, and mm-hmm. I knew my feet and legs wouldn't, you know, take long term. So my deal with George was, was I'll give you up to six months as long as I can take it. Yeah. Okay. I'll guarantee you a minimum of three. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were concerned about what would happen after I left because it was a chef-driven yeah. menu. Um, I said, well, you know what? We'll hire a really good sous chef. Mm-hmm. And if he's not versed in the Italian stuff, I'll just teach it to him. Yeah. You know, because if he's a good sous chef, he'll pick it up quick. And that's what we did. We hired uh, John Pache, mm-hmm. who had been um, the chef at Riley's for 13 years. Hmm. And um, he uh, he walked in off the street, and I was ecstatic. Hmm. So John came in. We worked well together. You know, yeah. he the things that he you know had to watch me do, he did, and he pulled it off pretty good. Hmm. And uh, from there, did you take a break, or were you still? You took a break, right, before you went up to like the ones after that. I remember Sports Side Thirty One. Yeah. Well, I got. Physically, I was kind of beat up from yeah. Francesca's. Those were because I was there for um, probably four or five months before we opened. Yeah, helping with the opening, yeah, testing things, hiring staff, training them, that kind of thing. Hmm. So um, you know that that was almost uh, not quite a year's gig. Yeah. you know, with Francesca's, and uh, then after that, I took some time off, and of course. You know, uh, Grandpa had already passed, but, you know, we were taking care of Grandma at that time. Yeah. And um, so I was just trying to catch up. And, uh, you know, then I started to remarket myself. I did a couple of simple things, wrote a couple menus in that. Mm-hmm. And then I got uh, through uh, word of mouth. I got the uh, opening at uh, Sportside 31. Yeah. Um, and uh, went up there and, you know, redid basically the internally the whole operation. Yeah, that place was a shit show, right? It, when I got in there, it was rough. Yeah. It was really rough. And um, so I redid the menu. I put them in the barbecue business. Yeah. And it really started to go well. Mm-hmm. But um, one of these situations where you got an owner who wasn't really geared to the restaurant industry or yeah. the hospitality industry, I should say, and uh, was making kind of decisions based on money. Yeah. You know, which sometimes you have to do, but you're not always. Yeah. So uh, he, he, he hired a guy that trashed the whole menu that I had just hmm. taken months to write and put in place and train, and I wrote the specs for. Yeah, I, I wrote a manual there. That mm-hmm. To this day, you could take that manual and go start a chain restaurant. Hmm. Yeah, and you've just you've you know helped out little restaurants here and there throughout you know the past. Yeah, few I, years. you know I get calls for some from purveyors and salesmen. Yeah, you know I got this client. They're they're asking about this. They're asking about that. And, yeah. I, and I'll go help. I'll. I'll write a menu and, and that kind of thing. So if you could go back to any of the restaurants, you know, let's say, you know, before Francesca's and back or whatever it is you owned or worked in, is, what's, is there one thing that you've thought of that you would have done differently? Wow, done differently. When you look back like that, there's a lot of things you do differently. But the, the, the one where I, I think I really screwed up was Uno's. Really? Yeah, I I should have never walked on that job. Hmm. I should have stayed there. I had the ten percent ownership. Um, we had the rights to B- Baltimore, Washington. I should have waited that whole thing out. 
Um, if the owners didn't want to expand the current owners, um, you know, maybe one or two of them would have been involved. We could have, we, we had a proven concept. Yeah. And I had taken them from a, from a negative cash flow to a profit hmm. in a matter of five months. Wow. When I got there. Um, their negative cash flow, I think, was, was I'm, I want to say, 70, 80 grand, and I had them uh, 80 grand to the good in five months. Wow. And that's, you know, a lot of that was because they were top heavy and, and it was costing them a lot of labor, but the other part was paying attention to business, the details. Hmm. Uh, you know, that pizza product, when it's done correctly, is a great product. Yeah. The problem is that it gets diluted, you know, over time by different people not paying attention to the details but it really is a good product you still have the pans yeah i got some pans yeah and i still got the recipes too <laughs> you know but i i changed i like the sausage recipe i used their their sausage mix i just made it a little bit hotter a little bit more red pepper yeah which which went over real well but um you know their their dough is different than yeah. most pizza shops um it's a twice baked pizza yeah so you run you 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 portion your dough out and, and spread it in the pan like a pie crust. And then the whole thing gets covered with sliced mozzarella mm-hmm. and pushed into it. Then that goes through the conveyorized oven. And um, then they get held. Half of those are cheese only. Half of them are so- with Italian sausage. Hmm. And when you put the sausage in that pizza, it covers the entire bottom of the pizza. Yeah. So we had four size pizzas originally on the menu. The large pizza weighed seven pounds wow. of product, hmm. not including the pan. Hmm. So, or si- I'm sorry, six pounds. It was a pound per slice. Wow. And um, they, we had to take that off the menu because it was just the proportions were just way out of whack. That's crazy. If, if they didn't order the Uno. Yeah. You know, so they went down to three sizes. I think they're down to two now. But they changed hmm. their formula. I mean, uh, the, the chain went through a bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh, when they started out, the, the lunch menu was horrendous. All we had was salads and these lousy, san- you know, a few sandwiches that were lousy. Um, I actually put frittatas on the menu in Georgetown, hmm. and it, it increased our business, and they started to sell. Wow. And we just did the same thing. We just took eggs, yeah. beat them up, put them in the pan with the other ingredients, and sent them through the oven. Hmm. You know, it's great. Yeah. So, um, what do you? Th- what's one thing that you wish you would see different in some of the restaurants that are out there today? Well, um, I, you know, I, I've said this for a long time. You've heard me say it. You can have a restaurant with mediocre food mm-hmm. and great service, and they'll be successful. Yeah. And you can put a very talented chef in the back and put out some high quality food, and have lousy service, and it's going to fail. Yeah. Front of the house is super critical. Mm. And when I when I did my chain days, I it, I realized through that experience what the difference between an independent restaurant and a chain operation was. And the difference is the personality in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. And that is super critical. You know, one of the one of the uh uh best front end men I'd seen in a long, long time was Johnny. Um, his last name escapes me, but he had Johnny's on Getta Street where yeah. Stratomia is now. And he was a wonderful front of the house guy. Hmm. Uh, and he was, a, he was a Grimaldi disciple, hmm. you know, um, that's the kind of front end you want to run. Yeah. Uh, Jack's Reef Hotel, uh, when Harry D'Imperio and Marie D'Imperio owned it and ran it, 
you know, uh, she was she was the, in the kitchen and did a great job. Uh, would qualify as a chef in anybody's kitchen today. And Harry was was front of the house. Yeah. You know, and he was a he was a character mm-hmm. and a personality, and people loved that. I know they've closed and they've recently reopened and. Thank God the person that reopened them isn't there after just a few short months because he was destroying that place. Yeah. Well, uh, Ralph Del Pior Jr. Jr. bought it mm. from Harry Imperio, and the Del Pior family was a great food family. Um, that's Poodles and Jim's. Yeah. And Ralph's father, Ralph Sr., was a wonderful chef. Mm-hmm. He owned several places over the years. And, and Ralph learned a lot from him. And Ralph wound up buying um, Jack's Reef from Harry. And Ralph was a front-of-the-house guy. He was a great personality, hmm. you know. And he, he actually had his uncle Jimmy Stagnita from Poodles and Jim's in the kitchen with him, Yeah, you know. And those guys, they, they know food. You know, they put it out. But they also knew the front of the house. Yeah. And if I miss anything in the restaurant industry in this town, mm-hmm. it's that kind of personality in the front. Yeah. You know, you get a little bit of that at Joey's. Mm-hmm. You know, his brother Rick's in the front of the house a lot now. Uh, when Joey's there, because I don't think he works many nights, uh, if he does, he's usually in the kitchen, but he's there during the days. I mean, you just you you learn that these guys they they love what they do, they love the hospitality business, and they want to make you feel like you want to be there. Yeah, you know that's yeah. critical. You have an all-time favorite restaurant in Syracuse. <laughs> Currently or all time? All time. Oh wow. There was uh, there's a couple of them. There's one, it actually wasn't in Syracuse, it was in Cortland. And there was one in Auburn. The one in Cortland was called the Little Italian Kitchen. Mm. And they had um, veal parms and chicken parms and that kind of stuff. They didn't do the real high-end stuff. But they took a casserole dish, a good-sized one, and they sautéed everything and put it in a casserole dish and sauced it lightly. Hmm. And then did a boatload of cheese in them and stuck them in the oven hmm. and browned the cheese on top. I remember as a kid, I, I'd be drooling before we got there. Yeah. You know? And I'd walk in the door, and, uh, and when the waitress would come to the table, she goes, don't even talk. I know what you want. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It'd be one of those. Those were, those were great restaurants. The Candlelight Inn in my dad's building on Charles Avenue, the, the, uh, the chef there was a lady by the name of Jeannie Mancini. And uh, she was a German woman who had been married to Luigi Mancini, obviously an Italian guy. And he had a restaurant out east beyond Manlius called Sulphur Springs. Mm-hmm. And you, when you went to Sulphur Springs, you could smell the garlic three blocks away. Wow. You know, and great, great food. And uh, he had passed away. And I don't know how John Malitti found her, but he found her. And she, she put him on the map with food. She was mm-hmm. great. Matter of fact, there was a dish I put on on the uh, on the menu at Francesca's called steak Mancini, hmm. which is uh, steak Italian style with not sauce but uh, a Madeira wine reduction, hmm. and uh, you know the onions and peppers and mushrooms and, and garlic and that kind of thing. And she taught me that dish, hmm. and I've I've made that everywhere I went. That's funny. And I put that on the menu there. I wonder if that's on the menu there. Well, I knew it was for some time after I left, but I don't know if it still is. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I I'm, I'm feel honored that you asked me. Um, I just, you know, just for the independent people out there, um, I think that, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's an uphill battle, but it's an everyday 
you got to keep, you know, the the mark, the target in front of you. Yeah. You know, and you got to be shooting at that target. And it's it's all about the detail. It's all about making sure that the food is correct. Right. The place is clean and that the service is superb. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's this is probably true in every small business, but I I mean, not knowing how some other businesses are run, but I'd say for it's probably most true for the restaurant industry. Unless you're very, very, very lucky, you're not going to open up a restaurant and one day be able to make enough money in that to step out and turn the, you know, have somebody else, like put it on cruise control. Yeah. You're going to be in that place all the time. Well, you look at the guys who are successful today Mm -hmm. and they've been around a long time. Yeah. You know, Joey's been out there over 30 years. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, these guys, they've been there, been there, been there. They've seen it up. They've seen it down. You know, Joey's done a lot of different, uh, restaurants and they weren't all, you know, successful, obviously, but you know, he, he's in his wheelhouse, Yeah. you know, and he knows what he's doing. So you take these guys that have been around for 20 and 30 years and they're successful. And that's really what you want to emulate. You know, you want to go in, you, you kind of want to really look closely at what they're doing. You know, he's got staff that's been with him all those years. Right. So he's doing something right with them, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you hear, you know, you hear rumors, you hear horror stories all the time in this industry about how certain people are. You know, don't believe any of that stuff unless you know it for sure. Yeah. You know, yourself. And Mm. uh, you you can't argue with success. Yeah. So I just, you know, for for the independents, my heart goes out to the independents because I've always been in that bent. Even though I had chain experience and I worked for chains, um, and I, I understand, you know, that there's a formula. You follow the formula, you make money, you have success. Yeah. But to really be uh, in the hospitality industry and really care about everything that goes on in that restaurant, there's nothing like an independent that knows what he's doing. Well, there it is, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with my dad. Um, you know, I think maybe there's somebody out there who's a chef or a restaurant owner and you can relate to the similar story or similar progression that my dad had in the industry. Um, I don't know. I just hope you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, that's it. Do me a huge favor because reviews are so important to the podcasting world. Leave us a review and let me know what you think of the Eat Local CNY podcast. If you hit that subscribe button, it'll keep you up to date the second our next episode drops and all our future episodes. And do not forget, follow us on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Eat Local CNY. You can find us online at eatlocalcny.com where you can find a whole list of participating restaurants in the Eat Local CMY card and purchase your Eat Local CMY card for $20. Well, that's all I got for you until next week. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast.